This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Hello and welcome to another show. I'm Seb Lozier and this week we're joined by one of the real characters on tour. Hailing from South Africa, sometimes to be found in South Korea, owing to the fact that he's the coach of one of the most promising players on tour, Hyun Chung. I am talking about Neville Godwin. Neville and I had a great chat. We touched on his coaching philosophy, his time previously with fellow South African Kevin Anderson We talked about Chung's biggest achievements so far and his time out through injury. And first of all, whether lockdown had given the South Korean a chance to play catch-up. He had a couple of niggling things. I mean, his feats are very well documented over the last couple of years. And he's he's been able to, to... See, we feel like he's, he's come a long way in getting those sorted, as well as he had a couple of hand injuries with deep-seated blisters inside his hand, actually. And uh, he actually had a corn removed from his, his right hand in uh, April, I think it was. And yeah, he's, he's been practicing a lot. He's been practicing pretty much every day, you know, five days a week for the last three to four weeks. So really excited to get back out on tour and just trying to figure out how to schedule is, is not the easiest thing, uh, obviously, where his ranking is. And B, not being 100% sure which tournaments are going to be on and C, you know, what is the safest way to go about it. Yeah, with his ranking where it is, um, he's up above 100 at the moment, isn't it, I think? Um Obviously, he's a lot better than that. How, how does that impact on where you guys can play? I mean, does that mean he's going qualies and, and going that route? Yeah, so it's it's a tricky dilemma to have because uh, obviously we know he, he if he plays in challenges, he's going to do really well. And but we also want to, to sort of put him in the in the bigger sh- in the bigger show. So there's a there's a chance, I think, a very real chance he could get a main draw of the U.S. Open, even though there's no there's no qualifying there. Um, but obviously the USDA have pushed back as much as they, they, they're waiting until the very last moment to sort of say yes or no, whether they're going to host the event. And it, as, as, as it stands right now today, going to Europe would seem like the more logical option. But uh, obviously if you, if you get in main draw of a Grand Slam, you'd want to go down that road as well. So it's, it's, it's just, we just find ourselves in a tricky spot. Because this is a top player, isn't it? I mean, next-gen champion at the first attempt. Um, Australian Open semi-finalist, what, a couple of months after that? I mean, how good is this guy? As well as being his coach, I'm, I must be in the, his top five biggest fans as well. Uh, I've, seen, I've been courtside for so much. You know, one, I wasn't with him with Next Gen, but I was with him, in, uh, you know, in Auckland where he beat John Isner. Then he went to Australia and made a great run. You know, quarterfinals of Indian Wells, beating Burditch, beating Cuevas very comfortably. Then to the quarterfinals of Miami straight after that. When he's on, he's just incredibly difficult to play against. And he's got all the weapons. He's got all the tools. He knows so many of the guys. That he came through with, uh, in the juniors with your, you know, your Kyrgios, your Zverev, your Courage, all these guys. And he's very comfortable being there. I mean, even last year, he, he barely played. Uh, you know, and he, his first tournament back in six months, and he won a big challenger in China. You know, we went to US Open. He had an incredible f- five-set win against Vadasco after coming back from two shocking first sets. And then beating Cilic and Rayonic later in the year, you know. So, what makes him really special in my eyes is he doesn't have to play a lot to play well, and that's really, really unique for a top player. Why is that? Why can he just drop in and not play? And you know, what is it about his game or about his his physical stature? Well, he 
he's got an incredible belief in himself. He knows exactly what he's going to do when he goes on the tennis court. He knows when he feels good and he knows when he doesn't feel good. So he generally, when he steps on the tennis court, he's feeling good. I also believe that his, uh, for, so, for a very long time, his, his practice has always been focused on quality, not necessarily quantity. So he just, he's just able to, to have that really high level all the time whenever he steps foot on court. Because he's, what, 24 this year? And other players, as you mentioned, in the same sort of generational stable as him, of you know, they've gone on and done amazing things while he's been struggling with, with injury. Um, you know, Tsitsipas winning the, the ATP finals and you know, Medvedev and Zverev winning Masters. It must have been hugely frustrating for him as well. Yeah, and he's, he's unique because he... He hasn't necessarily seen it as a negative. He, it's nearly been a, a motivating factor. He goes, well, if those guys can do it, I know where I am in relation to them when I'm healthy. And so I, I just have to get healthy and I know what I, I'm able to do. So uh, he hasn't really, uh, I mean, his, his mindset has been incredible over all the injuries that he's actually endured. That, uh, he, you know, he always just comes back and he focuses. And it's, it's, some of the injuries have been related and some of them have been completely unrelated. But uh, he's just got a fantastic attitude towards it. And, you know, he knows what he wants to try and do and what he wants to try and achieve. So, uh, uh, like, bringing up those guys, I think he, it actually gives him more confidence rather than demotivates him. And as you say, you know, the, the one thing holding him back is these injuries. As his coach, how do you help him manage these injuries? In particular, you know, it's, it sounds like he's got a, a particular predisposition to blistering, I guess. Yeah, it's, you know, everyone always talks about the blisters, but it, it, it's blisters is just sort of like the word that it's, it's used to, to kind of describe it. It's not, exactly, it's not actually exactly blisters. So it's just something that's kind of used to describe what the, the condition is. Yeah, sometimes it's, it's plausible what, what happens and sometimes it just it makes no sense. So we try to deal with each one as it comes up and try to make the best decision moving forward and, you know, just always have a plan. And I think he, he works really well if you can just give him a plan and say, okay, right, we're going to do X, Y, and Z for the next two to three weeks or months. And then we'll have, a, you know, we'll kind of bring our heads up and have a look at where we are and go from there. And he works really well like that. And I think it, it could be in his, the long term of his career, it could be quite a blessing in disguise, you know, that he's able to really do these little bite-sized chunks and he gets used to doing them now because, you know, he don't have to worry about what we're going to be in three years, five years, 10 years time. Because all players must play through pain, um, kind of goes without saying. Is is he, is he a trooper? You know, will he will he carry on going and going, or is he getting to the stage now where he'll say to you, "Listen, I'm going to do myself more harm than good here." It's all going to depend on obviously what it is. If it's, if he walks on the court with a pre a pre-existing something, you know, maybe he's torn something here or there, um, and he will say, "Okay, we'll go out and see how far you can go." Um, we're not interested in short-term results. We we know. We want to build a long career for him. I mean, like you say, he's only 24 and he could play very easily into his 30s, which most guys are doing now. And, I mean, he's already proven that he's, he's, he can win at the highest level. So um, these are positive signs for him. And we're not going to take any risks. So, you know, if, if he goes out there and you're in the final of a 1,000, sure, we'll take some risks. Or in the semifinals of a, of a slam, we'll take some risks. If you're in the first or second round of, of a, maybe a 250 or a challenger, we're probably going to be less likely to take the risk. So it's just about trying to be smart about how you manage them. 
Well, you mentioned the semi-final of the Grand Slam. You're, you've obviously been there. Um, and the blister, as you say, has been well documented. You know, every everyone's seen it, I think, on social media or whatever. Uh, give us an insight into the locker room and what you were talking about before that match. Because obviously you're not just going out in any match, as you say. It's a semi-final Grand Slam, Roger Federer. What were the discussions before the game? Well, I mean, what people... It's not really that well highlighted or documented is that his, uh, his feet were actually really, really bad already three matches before that when he played Sasha Zverev in the, in the, the third round, you know, and then against Novak in the, in the fourth round and then Tennis Sandgren. I mean, he was taking anesthetic injections into his feet uh, by the tournament doctor, you know, 20 minutes before the match. So, you know, he, he put through, he's been through a lot of pain and it was just maybe one hurdle too far. This, I mean, basically the, the podiatrist actually had to come and just about hack his whole feet, his foot to pieces to, you know, to, for him to even be able to walk. So he went as far as he could go. And, you know, we've been a little bit unlucky. There's been definitely some unluckiness since then, but uh, his, his, his attitude has been great and he wants to get back and win as soon as he can. And I think when we get him on court, he wins. It's as simple as that. Yeah. I mean, he beat Zverev, Djokovic, en route um, to that Medvedev second round. Medvedev second round. Quarterfinal or better in 10 events in 2018 as well. Um, up inside the top 20. I mean, it all suggests that he can go right to the top if, if he gets his body right. I believe so. I mean, I think we just, we're desperate to have a clean run. You know, if we can get six to nine months, uh, two to three years, whatever it might be, I believe the results are going to come. I mean, like I said previously, when he plays, he wins. It's it's not very often that he he takes many first round losses in a row. Um, he you know he when he get him when he get him on court, he's, he's, he beats and he's not scared really to play anyone, which I think all the the whole tour recognizes. You know, people he's 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 great guy to practice with. He's a great guy to be around. Uh, many guys love practicing with him, and you know people have a, a very high the in the locker room has a very high respect for for what he can do. What's his big shot? His speed is his, his biggest weapon. Uh, he's got a phenomenal backhand. Uh, I mean, he'll, he'll happily trade backhands with anyone. And he's just got an incredible high tennis IQ, I believe. I mean, he, he just picks the right shot at the right time very often. And that's something to be said. Well, and where can you still improve him? Well, I think um, his ability to, to shorten points effectively will, will come into, into play. He, we know he's got great defense. Uh, he returns well and i think he can also return better i think he ser- he can serve a little bit smarter and set up his points a little bit better many people have said his game is very similar to novak's and i c- i can see a lot of similarities there and when novak really kicked into another gear the most impressive thing that improved from from my opinion anyways is his serve and his placement and his uh, how he's, how dominant he was on serve. He's always in your service game and then he's holding serve pretty easily and that's a nice combination. He must also have been disappointed that an Asian Olympics was postponed. Obviously, there'll be there'll be Japanese players in Tokyo and they'll take a lot of the limelight, but it must be very big on his, on, on your radar too. Definitely. Uh, he's, he's desperate to play Olympics. Um, uh, it'll be a massive feather in his cap and he, he is a big Asian superstar. You know, he's been the one sort of touted after, after K. Uh, you know, he had the next results. Obviously, we've, in the last sort of 18 months, we've had a lot of Japanese guys coming through. Nishioka, Jared Daniel, uh, Uchiyama. Have, they've had a lot of guys coming through. But, you know, the, 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 the Asian fan base, is, it's, they're not necessarily that worried about where you're from. Uh, you know, they, they'll support you regardless. And tennis is a pretty minor sport in South Korea, isn't it? Has there been a Chung effect yet, like there has been in, in Japan with K? 
not yet. Uh, I mean, he's very, very, he's very popular. It, it's quite, it is a popular sport there. It's just not as big as, you know, uh, let's say soccer or, or baseball as well. I, I think if, if we can get Chung and then as well Sunu Kwan, who's, who's a really up-and-coming great young player, uh, I think that'll really help to get two guys in. And, and I believe if we can get them into the ATP Cup somehow, that'll, that'll really kickstart it even more. You're listening to the voice of Neville Godwin, coach of Hyun Chung and formerly of fellow South African Kevin Anderson too for three, four years. In fact, Neville, you you won ATP Coach of the Year with Kevin before you you two went your separate ways. I was wondering also what what you learned from working with with Kev. Well, it was an incredible learning adventure actually with Kevin. We went through so much and I'm always grateful to him for giving me the opportunity to get on back on tour. And, you know, he's such a... A professional. He he really tries to cross every T, dot every I, and uh, he doesn't want to leave any stone unturned. And that that really, you had to be on your toes working with him because he was always looking for sort of a new something new to improve on. And he, you know he he wasn't really happy with you saying, well, no, let's just do what we've been doing better. You know he wanted something to do improve better so, uh, to to improve on. So there was always a big challenge with Kevin, but uh, I think. You know, he's just—he was a great guy to work with, and he—he uh, he brought so much to the table. You know, he—he's a lot of energy, a lot of focus on to what he's doing, and sometimes even nearly over-disciplined, if that's a—if that's a thing. And on paper, the U.S. Open final really stands out. Um, what were you doing with him at that time that obviously worked so well? That was sort of a culmination of a lot of things that we've started. We we worked on in 2017, uh, starting already on the clay. You know, Kevin. That, earlier that year, he came back from about I think his ranking was about 90, maybe even 85, 90 in the world. And he had a, a penchant for being quite hard on himself and uh, sometimes not not inputting enough of the positive energy into himself. And we we started way back on the clay, really against his nature. Really started being more positive and and searching for affirmations and and finding things to to be positive about. And I think. Uh, people will, will remember that he was particularly sort of vocal in U.S. Open uh, in Toronto and in Washington earlier that year. Yeah, he had a really great summer, and he, as, as well, he had a great Wimbledon. He was in, he lost in a very tough force uh, five set, I believe, it was to Sam Querrey at Wimbledon. So he could see he was on the right path, and it was it was it was a massive uh, personality change for him on court to to actually come out and be so verbal and so vocal. Yeah, he really did take. It was noticeable when he started doing that. That was very much a conscious thing. Definitely, uh, it was. You know, he had myself, Jay Bosworth, who still works with him, uh, his psychologist as well, and you know, we we were basically the team. He made he made a decision to do something, and we were the sort of people just to have, have to hold him accountable for it on a daily basis because he he knew that his potential was to slip back into his sort of more shy, calm self and. Uh, that was not going to work. That was not going to get him to where he needed to get to. Well, it definitely worked. Um, as I mentioned, you, you won ATP Coach of the Year that year. I mean, out of all the coaches out there on tour, what, what did that mean to you? Well, that was massive because it's not voted for by the fans. It's voted for by your peers. So it was just a massive sort of feather in your cap and like recognition by your, your fellow coaches. They acknowledge that you're actually doing a good job and that you know what you're talking about and that you've really helped someone to get a lot better. And I think that's that's why it means so much to to the to whoever wins the coach of the year. It's it's quite a prestigious award amongst the coaches because it's voted by by your peers. You know, it's a great initiative by the ATP that they recognize that the coaches get to recognize each other. 
Just finally on Kevin, I think we were all surprised when you did go your separate ways. Was it was it just a you know the the things just come to an end? Was there a specific thing that you know that that made it happen? No, it was uh, it was a we had a, a beautiful four years together, and you know we we sat down after obviously after U.S. Open, and we had the Asian and European swing after that. We recognized what was what he had done well, and and we sort of realized well maybe it'd be better for him to move forward, to move on to find a different set of eyes. And I think uh, he, he made a great call. He had Brad Stein in his corner for a year and, you know, he, he pushed on after also, unfortunately he's also dealt with injuries. So in my seven years on tour, I've dealt with quite a lot of injury uh, layoffs. Neville, I'm really interested. And especially as a, a former winner of the ATP coach of the year to dig some more into your, you know, your particular take on coaching, because there are so many different ways to, to approach it and so many different philosophies. But what would you say is your, you know, coaching philosophy, if you have one? I think I'm a pretty calm person. I, I bring a good energy to the court. I think I'm pretty well organized. I like to let the, the, the players sort of dictate their, their goal setting. I'm not sort of a dictator who says, are we going to do X, Y, and Z, or are we going to do this and that? And, you know, I like to have the player not lead the way, but uh, he, he has to have a big say in it because at the end of the day, he's, it's his career, it's uh, his choices, and he's the one out on the court that has to make the decision. So, you know, I'm, I'm your biggest sort of fan when I'm, when I'm in your corner, and I'm going to really do my best to help you by seeing, trying to see things, but trying to keep everything organized so that you, all, literally all you can do is just get out there and play and compete as best you can. What makes you decide as a coach when you want to work with a player? Yeah, that's a great question because I, I don't believe that there's a, one coach for every single player. You know, so there has to be a chemistry, there has to be an understanding, and there has to be good communication between you. You have to really agree on what you're going to do, and you can't agree all the time. But it's it's you know how the information is communicated and how you get along. You know, and when the if, if the player wants to talk, I've got to let him talk and and tell me what's going on and just listen to the player. Um, it's not something sort of tangible that you can say, oh, it's X, Y, or Z. It's just a, a feeling or a sensation. Oh, yeah, we could work together and we can actually do something good. And when there are disagreements, not that I'm saying there are lots of disagreements, but when there are, it, it must almost be like a marriage, you know, because you, you are together so much of the time. Absolutely. It's, it's like any relationship. It's, uh, you have to you talk it out and, you know, or put your point forward. And, and I think probably one of the things I missed out on saying earlier is, in my opinion, one of the very most important things of being a good coach is actually, you actually have to not have that much of an ego. You have to really try and listen and be, uh, be the, the lesser uh, ego of the two people because, you know, obviously the, these guys are out there making millions of dollars. They're playing on big courts in front of a lot of people. And I just don't think it works that well if the coach has got a bigger ego than the player. And you mentioned you know goal setting before I guess it comes as much from the player as from the coach is there a right way and a wrong way for you to to set goals be be it short term long term what's the good sort of balance for for setting achievable goals I guess yeah I think it it all comes from once again as as player-led so whatever the player is comfortable with and you have to push them as close to their comfort zone as what you can possibly do and and explore that comfort level that where they're happy to to get pushed to and you know some players you know, you can say, oh, we want to go for 40 or 50 match wins this year. So another player might say, okay, I want to win three tournaments this year. It's all relative to the person, what they're comfortable with and what they, you know, because sometimes if you set the goals too unrealistically or too low, it can be 
actually more harmful than good. So it's, it's very important just to, to have open dialogue about it and, and know exactly what you're trying to achieve. So to come back to Chung as a good example here, I mean, guess I guess where he's been in terms of, you know, he's been out, he's ranking at the moment is, you know, 140 or whatever it is. What kind of targets are you setting together this year or and next year, I guess? Yeah, I mean, the first target is obviously his health. Uh, we just, you know, once once he gets fully healthy and we can get a good clean run of, you know, three months, six months, nine months, whatever it is, then we'll start sort of reassessing, uh, okay, well, what are, where do we want to get to? Um, obviously, he's, he always wants to be, you know, main draw slams. One thing about he's, he's not really too bothered about playing qualifying or even playing challenges. You know, he knows his, his level and his standard is, is really high. So he, the, the, the massive focus of the last sort of two years has just been on purely trying to be healthy, play enough, not overplay to, to, um, to get the, enough to match play and, and then go from there. And then once we really start getting building up ahead of steam i think then we can start looking at different goal sets you know okay we want to try to win a thousand or 500 whatever the case may be we have to start with winning a 250 hasn't won any of those yet on the mental side of things the mental side of the game is so important obviously as a, as a coach how do you help a player become more mentally resilient so many of these guys are working with with sports psychologists now so my job basically is to is to have a relationship with a sports psychologist and we, we relay information between each other uh, and as to what we're going to actually present to the player. And the biggest thing with him is, you know, the, the more stuff that we can take off of his plate, so in preparation, the better they will, he will play. So it, the, the job is to take care of all the preparation, however possible we can, and that makes them mentally more resilient, I, I believe. You know, so if, he, if a player walks on the court and he feels like he's prepared for that particular duel or battle, he'll, be, he'll, be, he'll run through the walls for you. And what about dealing with pressure, Neville? Is there a way of helping them deal with clutch points, break points down, closing out a match? Or are some players simply just better in those moments than others? Well, I think there are people that are just better and, and, and expect themselves to deliver in, the, in those moments because they have. For You know, you take someone like, like uh, Chung, he just always delivered. He had a stellar junior career. I mean, he had one of the most outstanding junior careers of all the guys on tour. So he... he just has this inner belief that when the, the chips, when, when it's game time and it's time to perform, he's, it's just going to happen. And it's just because he has years and years of data of that. So, you know, it's, it's once again, for me, it always comes back to preparation. And if, if you've prepared the guy as well as he can be prepared for a situation, you know, you're playing with the best players in the world so who are able to adapt to many things. So it's how you adapt on the match day. And I, I've always said, you know, you can probably prepare a player for up to about the first hour of a match until the other guy sort of figures something out and changes. And then your, your player has to be adaptable and flexible to be able to think on his feet. If you were to work, though, with a player who perhaps does struggle in those key moments, is there a way that you'd kind of coax them out of that? It comes down to uh, the big moments, it comes to execution. So if you give people okay, you have to, you're in a big moment, so you're obviously going to have uh, some kind of an emotion attached to it. You're going to be nervous, you're going to be angry, you're going to be scared, you're going to be excited, whatever it's going to be. So first of, the first sort of agenda would be to take the emotion out of it. Um, so, okay, now make an emotionless decision and just go and execute. So that would be my sort of uh, first goal to give to anyone. Is, is any, as we know, just in normal life, any decision based on emotion is going to be a bad one. So obviously in a, in a pressure situation for a tennis player, that, that emotion is heightened. Um, so as much as possible, you have to take the emotion out of it and just go out and execute and see the facts. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, that's, that, 
the, I guess, the mental side of the game. In terms of the physical side of the game, getting the body right, I mean, we've, we've spoken a little bit about it already. What would you say is the ideal way for you to, and I know you have trainers and things to do this as well, but what's the, what's the ideal way in terms of rest and training blocks in, in a normal season? Yeah, so um, most guys, I mean, we, we unfortunately, we haven't even been able to do it with, with, with Jan yet, but uh, I, would, I would say, you know, up to four tournament weeks before a rest. Uh, four tournament weeks would probably be about the max that most guys would do. And, and then you'd need at least maybe one or two. And it just depends on how you, you look at your season, you know, like uh, how you lead up to a slam. Some players really like to play the week before a slam. Some players don't want to play the week. They just want to be practicing and feeling really fresh for the, for the two weeks of the, of the actual slam. So you have to figure that out. And, and it takes a couple of years to, to actually figure out what is best for, each, for your in, each individual player. Some guys get mentally tired from playing a lot. Other guys get mentally stimulated from playing a lot. So it's, it's really knowing your player, sitting down, and making sure that they need a good sort of rest patterns throughout the year and, and time to, to get their body back into stability. Because as we know, when they play in uh, match, in competition phases, it's very difficult to sort of maintain your body strength and, and, and stuff like that because obviously just your matches are long and they're quite draining. In terms of the game and the, the actual game you play, are you a fan of focusing in on one big weapon? I, I guess with, with Kevin Anderson, it would be the serve and the forehand. Or, or are you a fan of building an, all, an all-round game and, and a player not having any weaknesses? Well, I think ideally you'd want them to have an all-round game with no weaknesses, but that's not really possible now. I mean, the guys that come with such amazing strengths. That, so, you know, we could just about dissect anyone in the top 10 and they've probably got two or three major strengths. And the, the thing is to bring your weaknesses sort of up to par, if you like, and, and make sure that they, they're not going to cost you matches. So your strengths are always going to be what's going to win your matches and your weaknesses have to be good enough so they're not going to necessarily lose your matches and, and they're, they're less exploitable for your opponents. What's the most popular or the most frequent weakness, would you say, among, say, top 20 players? It's a, a very difficult. The, the top 20 guys don't have many weaknesses. That's, uh, that's for a fact. But, you know, it, it'll be on any given day on a particular surface. Uh, you know, if you take, uh, I don't know, maybe someone like Team, his, his, his results on grass have been the, the, less, the least good. Uh, same with, with very, sort of his slam results have been the less, least good. So you'd have to look at, um, there's guys that, that like to play deep in the court. There's guys that like to play more up the court. So you'd have to look to try and expose them in a psychological and in a, a movement way. And, and, you know, obviously they're the best in what they do for a reason. They've done it time and time again. So you have to just try and marry up what you do well against their, against their, their strengths and weaknesses. And in terms of the way your players play, as a, as a former serve volleyer yourself and someone who liked to go forward obviously played a lot of doubles are, are you big on them going forward ideally would you want all of your players to be going forward to the net and killing off points or is it you know is it is it difficult to some sometimes get players doing that these days no i think it's it's a process and uh, if if it's possible it's it's it can be very effective because obviously you know to to, to win a point with a volley is supposedly easier but you have to understand the processes that are going to get you to the net and to, to be able to create an easy volley put away. And that's something that we worked really, really hard with Kevin on for a long time. Um, you know, not necessarily volleying better, but uh, sort of working on how to get the net, what shot to come in behind, where to cover, those sort of things. And, and those are the more important things. So 
uh, I think everyone needs to have that aspect of playing in the forecourt to their games because you need to learn how to shorten points effectively. And, and also, it's, it can put your opponents under a lot of pressure. So, once again, it comes back to knowing your, your player. And, uh, you know, there's some way, like, for example, with Hyun, I trust his tennis IQ impact, you know, immensely. He, he, he just makes the right decisions. And he'll come in when I least expect it, but it would be the right play. So, I would like to see him play a little bit closer to the baseline. But, and he does volley amazingly well, so I'd like to see him come in more. But that's not really his bread and butter, if you, if you like. The way the game's gone with the technology and everyone hitting such a big ball now, it, does it sadden you in a way that you know, you're, you're going to see fewer people going to the net? Is that just a fact of modern tennis? I think it's just a fact of modern tennis. I mean, what I would like to see, I think if, if, you, if, you, look at across, if you look at the numbers across all the surfaces, there's a sort of a, a, quite a big similarity, even from grass to clay to hard court in terms of the ball speed, the ball coming off the court, there's not massive differences. So guys can kind of play the same way across the surfaces. Whereas if you went back to sort of like the early to mid nineties, uh, Wimbledon to Roland Garros was this massive difference, you know, the, and you saw different guys doing well. And I do miss that a little bit. And I think it, it created a little bit, uh, not necessarily a higher skill level, just a different skill level. Yeah, I, I have to say, I, I would certainly put my hand up and be one of the people who, who misses a good serve volley. I think it's a, unfortunately a, an increasingly a, a lost art. But anyway, um, just let me ask you um, about coaching young, younger players as well, because I know you've, you've done that a fair bit in South Africa, your native South Africa. Um, and for, for the listeners who obviously, you know, everyone has a kinship with coaching kids and, and obviously everyone's played as a kid. What's the secret to developing um, a promising youngster? Well, I mean, I can, I can speak more freely from South African perspective. And we, in South Africa, it's, it's, we really have a massive multi-sport background. You know, so from, as from 10 years old, you're playing cricket, soccer, rugby, field hockey, swimming, water polo, tennis. Uh, you, you know, you're playing a, a multitude of sports. You know, you, you're running cross country, you're riding your bike on mountain bikes and things like that. So from, from me, what I've always focused on in South Africa is to really make sure that if I start coaching kids at 10, 11, 12, that by the age of 18, they're actually still playing the, the eight, whatever, in our example, it's obviously tennis. Um, because too many kids get lost along the way by pushy parents or doing too much. And um, you know, there's other countries where a single, playing a single sport growing up is the norm, but we just come from a multi-sport uh, background. And I just think keeping kids in the sports is the most important thing. I mean, to go and pick up an iPad or play PlayStation or all these things is becoming much, much easier for them. So really to encourage sports and, and make them enjoy it. You know, and the more, generally speaking, the more people enjoy doing something, they want to, the, the more they want to do it, the more they do it, the better they're going to get. It's really interesting that you say that South Africa is such a huge multi-sport nation. I guess there are there are other nations like that. Do do you think it's an advantage to be playing more sports younger, or do you think it's an advantage just to be focusing in on one? I think either can be an advantage. It just depends on how you look at it. You know, from South Africa, you get to to learn from a very early age how to compete in tennis, cricket, soccer, golf, rugby. Uh, cross country and you get to learn how to compete in a, many, in a in a multitude of different things not only one so you, you, you don't sort of become sports specific um, however you know and I always uh, sort of allude to maybe like an Eastern European mindset where they grow up playing far less sports so they become much more singularly focused whereas um, our kids have so many more options uh, to do things you know largely due to the weather and the facilities that we have available I mean my kids can grow up 
They can play tennis, golf, cricket, uh, you know, whatever they want on amazing things. And it's very affordable where most, a lot of countries in the world, they can't do that. So I think both are very valid, but it just depends on the situation. If you are going down the multi-sport route, though, at what age do, do you need to be only playing tennis if ultimately you're going to be a tennis player, do you think? Well, I mean, what, we, what we've seen is that, you know, guys playing well into their 30s. And I mean, if you went back 30 years, it was sort of like touch and go where the guys would go to college because it's the why well, I'm going to miss out on too much. And I think now with the amount of money that there is in the sport and the longevity that people show that you can play well into your 30s, uh, I would say that that single sport specialization air period has actually gone up to maybe even as much as 16 or 15 or 16. But you obviously have to play at a very high level before that. And then, you know, when you want to start okay, at 15 or 16, I really want to focus in, go for it. And then, you know, then go, go after it. Neville, I know you're still relatively young in your coaching career, but what, what are the best things you've learned so far in your, in your coaching time? You know, you, you, you can never know, know everything. You've, you always, you can got to consistently be, be learning. Um, I have a, a ton of really good friends that, that are coaches on the tour and we spend a lot of time together drinking wine, maybe having a barbecue, and just talking about tennis and it's fascinating to always learn, get other people's viewpoints of, you know, how did this match pan out? And, you know, I'll watch a match and I go, oh, I saw X, Y, and Z. And they'll go, well, I saw something completely different. And then when you actually say, hear what they say, it sort of will blow your mind, you know, because you, everyone has these interesting viewpoints. And I've learned so much from my fellow coaches and, and as well from the players, just because uh, things, have, things have changed so much. So it's, it's just been an amazing journey and it will continue to be for, for me as long as I'm, I'm still coaching. My thanks to Neville Godwin and for an extended version of that chat, including the best and worst advice he thinks he's given along the way. Check out our ATP Tennis Radio exclusives page on TuneIn. Join us next week when we'll hear from some of the greatest players to have played the game. That is a promise. And we'll bring you a fascinating interview with American player Michael Moe and his insight into being a young black man who's also a tennis player in the current social climate. Join us then. If you like this podcast... Please search the iTunes store for ATP Tennis Radio to leave a review. Review.